Support comes from Clipper Vacations, offering getaways on the Clipper Fast Ferry to Victoria, B.C. Clipper Ferry and hotel packages from $250 per person. Enjoy historic charm, afternoon tea, and more. Terms and conditions apply. Details and booking at clippervacations.com. From KUOW in Seattle, welcome to Soundside. I'm Libby Dankman. The city of Seattle really wants you to become a police officer. We're seeking leaders to serve our community right now. We're proud and supportive of our SBD officers, leaders who wear the uniform and help people solve problems, save lives, and keep our community safe. But boy, does being an officer seem to come with a lot of baggage right now. Seattle's police department is grappling with several scandals, allegations of gender discrimination, a drawn-out labor contract negotiation, and a 30-year high in homicides. Plus, there's a sense that much of the public's perception of police has shifted in recent years, especially when it comes to use of force and racial disparities in the criminal justice system. All this may be contributing to why, like many departments across the country, the Seattle Police Department faces a serious shortage of police officers, hence that hiring push. In a new project on policing in Seattle, KUOW has taken a look at how the department is faring in developing alternative responses to 911 calls, what members of Seattle communities that have been impacted by rising crime want to see from their police department. Plus, we'll examine the reason so many police officers are leaving Seattle and what can be done about it. Reporter Amy Radel is my co-host for today's show. She covers law enforcement for KUOW. Welcome, Amy. And 2024 is going to be a pivotal year for policing in Seattle and Washington State as a whole. Thank you for helping guide us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I mentioned baggage. Is that a fair word? I mean, big picture, what do you think are the biggest challenges and questions facing SPD this year? Um, Well, yeah, I think we hear that staffing is probably the biggest issue that affects the day-to-day reality for SPD officers and the public. Um, and then beyond that, you know, the negotiations on a new contract for members of the Seattle Police Officers Guild, um, that's all happening while we're still under oversight from the federal court on some of these key issues. Um, and then finally, I think there are some specific cases that are, you know, still of a big concern to the public right now. Um, the investigations into Officer Kevin Dave, who um was the one who was in the collision that struck and killed John V. Kandula about a year ago, and then Detective Daniel Otterer. Um, and we should learn more about findings uh, regarding both of their cases in the next couple weeks. Otterer being the vice president of the union who responded to investigate and was caught on a phone call um, making a joke about the situation. Um, and, you know, the union has pushed back and said that the call was taken out of context. So, These Seattle Police Officer Guild contract negotiations have stretched on for years, Amy, and bargaining teams are currently working with a mediator to try to find common ground. I spoke to Guild President Mike Solon about these talks, and we're going to hear some of that conversation in just a minute. But for some context, why is this process, this negotiation with the union, so consequential to the city? I think there's two big reasons. I mean, I hear local oversight entities saying that this next contract will be a real indication of the health of police culture and accountability um, in Seattle. Um, And then related to that, the federal judge, uh, James Robart, has said the city won't be released from his oversight unless this contract contains some important changes over the previous one. Um, He said that that one essentially made it too easy to reinstate officers who committed misconduct. 
And the SPOG contract supersedes city law in those cases where they've negotiated. Any idea why these talks with SPOG have dragged on so long? Is this typical? Um, I just can say that it was also the case in the last round of talks that, um, you know, it expired in 2014 and the new one wasn't passed until 2018. So a pretty similar situation that time around. Of course, this time, you know, they've they will get back pay once the contract is ratified. But, uh, you know, we've had a lot of inflation. And so, you know, members of that union haven't had any wage adjustment, um, you know, at this point as the negotiations continue. Um, And then they are are probably talking about these accountability provisions, which would be pretty painstaking negotiations. Um, Seattle has three different entities that do this oversight work, the Office of Police Accountability, the Office of the Inspector General, the Community Police Commission. They get called the three-legged stool uh, of the three different offices. And they all had some criticisms uh, in the last round over some of the provisions of the last contract. Um, So there will be things that they're looking for in this next contract. So all of that is kind of playing into the length of time that it's been taking, I would I would imagine, although these negotiations are confidential. Right. They're closed door. We don't have a whole ton of information about what's been going on. Um, let's talk big picture here, Amy, because in 2020, thousands of Seattleites took to the streets to demand sweeping changes in policing in the wake of George Floyd's murder. The majority of the city council at the time supported a framework put forward by activists to defund the police department by 50 percent. That never happened. Was there more than talk going on here? I mean, how different does the Seattle Police Department look today almost four years later? Yeah, we've all we've probed this question, you know, tried to make headway in it, um, you know, in these last few years. Um, I, I tend to think that of it as SPD eventually defunded itself. Uh, its funding was not removed, but it shrank because so many officers left and their positions remained unfilled, you know, even though they were budgeted and planned for by the city and by SPD. Um, beyond that, probably one of the biggest changes we've seen since 2020 was carving out our 911 dis dispatch to become its own agency and adding some new mental health responders, which we'll talk about a little later. Um, And then there's one more significant development I think people should know about, which is that the inspector general created a new process for SPD to work through some of these really contentious issues with stakeholders. Um, And this dialogue in they've done it about crowd control and basically what happened step by step during the 2020 protests. You know, they broke it down day by day and they made recommendations that change policy have changed SPD's approach to crowd control since then. So um, I think we're talking use of tear gas, use of rubber bullets, things like that. Mm-hmm. And how they how they plan when they know protests are, are happening now these days, um, all those things. And so it, it really did culminate in some changes to policy. You know, we'll see what the what the federal court thinks uh about, you know, where we're at with that. But I just think that's a process for, you know, addressing culture, addressing policy that the public should be more aware of, because um, they might even look at deadly encounters for people in crisis this coming year, using that same thing of stakeholders from the community and from all ranks of SPD. And so, you know, that's just something to watch. And Amy, you recently reported on one of the department's newest pilot programs that's come out of the calls to find alternatives to 911 response. And that's the Community Assisted Response and Engagement, or care team. Still a pretty small program operating just downtown. Folks can learn more about that from your reporting on KUOW.org. I'm talking with KUOW's Amy Radel, who reports on law enforcement about the big issues facing the Seattle Police Department in 2024. And Amy, we often hear about reforming 
the culture of policing. But what does that mean? And are we seeing changes in these kinds of intangibles at SPD? Um, Well, the federal court has pointed out a lot of the big changes at SPD over the last decade um, that have been significant in terms of training for how officers approach people in crisis, um, the reductions in serious use of force. you know, so we, we hear that these big things have shifted and changed over the time that the consent decree has been in place. But then these specific controversies erupt, and they tend to, I think, be big setbacks in terms of community perceptions of SPD culture, um, like the death of John V. Kandula almost a year ago, um, also footage showing, you know, a Trump banner and a mock tombstone in one of the police precincts. That's another thing that's being investigated right now. Um, the number of SPD officers who attended uh, Donald Trump's January 6th rally in Washington, D.C. And then um, given the number of discrimination lawsuits that have been filed by SPD staff, you know, I've spoken to leaders at the Community Police Commission who say they're concerned about the internal culture at SPD, not only how it affects the public, but how it affects the officers, you know, who are working there. Um Meanwhile, SPD leadership says they're putting a new focus on officer wellness and trauma-informed care um, because they think that's something that feeds a good culture, a healthy culture. And the last I heard, they were trying to hire someone to oversee that work. Amy Radel covers government and law enforcement for KUOW, and she's graciously agreed to be our guide for today on SoundSide as we discuss the state of policing here in Seattle Amy, this is a lot. I mean, we didn't even get to some of these like statewide issues that are percolating uh, involving ballot measures and, you know, possible legislation regarding police accountability. Pursuits. Yep. Pursuits. Exactly. And as we discussed up top, this is all coming at a time when Seattle is facing a spike in homicides. Um, And the police department is one of many around the country struggling to hire and retain officers. Yeah, there's a lot at stake right now. And I think we're seeing certain issues like the murder rate and the staffing shortage become more acute in Seattle and certain big cities, even as those issues are improving elsewhere. And if you listen to many elected officials in Seattle right now, that's the number one issue, hiring. Officers have options, like anyone else. So we are competing and we want the finest officers here and we make no, we, we, we advance no ambiguities on that issue. And the numbers do seem to bear that out. Since 2020, Seattle has lost more than 600 officers and hired just under 260. The total net loss over the past four years, 355 officers. While departures have slowed down from their height in 2020, Mayor Bruce Harrell's introduction of a comprehensive recruitment plan that includes big bonuses for new hires has so far failed to reverse the trend of a shrinking department. 2019 was the last year SPD added more officers than it lost due to retirements, taking a job at another department, or leaving the profession entirely. Last year saw the lowest police staffing levels in the city since 1991. And Seattle is not alone. In October, a report from the U.S. Department of Justice identified an historic crisis in recruiting and retaining qualified candidates facing law enforcement agencies across the country. Tulsa, Oklahoma, is down police officers. So is Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Also short on cops? Phoenix, Chicago, Montgomery County, Alabama. The DOJ identified a number of causes for the crisis, including the COVID pandemic and a tightening labor market or low unemployment. According to Seattle Police Officers Guild President Mike Solon, however, it comes down to the real-world impact of messaging from city leaders. We, for a very long time, 
have not had the political support from our elected leaders in this city. And um, the 2020 movement, the defund movement, uh, really hindered our ability to be an effective uh, police force. And we've lost since 2019, 700 officers. And then you couple that with being out of a labor contract for what is now over three years. That is a recipe to, I think, create an atmosphere where the human beings that want to do the job of policing, particularly here in Seattle. Solon argues that for cops, the atmosphere has been worsened by Seattle's progressive politics. He says they've undermined recent hiring and retention for the department. He also argues that officers fear legal prosecution for doing their jobs. But he says he's encouraged by November's election when a wave of city council candidates won while promising to improve the council's relationship with SPD. If you look at some of the exit interviews that the uh, that the city does, the police department does with people exiting, uh, some of it's very clear. People cite a hostile work environment. The political climate is just too polarizing. Uh, there's too much of a legal risk to, you know, your your. I would say your well-being and your financial status in terms of being a police officer, uh, the possibility of being charged with a crime is heightened here. Uh, the scrutiny is too immense. And then the overall word that I use and I hear it quite often is unreasonable. And I think that's what Seattle has gravitated towards is this unreasonable scrutiny with police accountability. And, and, and I say that in a measured response because I, I just want to be clear so I don't get uh, some of my answers cut up. Um, this current council, to me, that was just elected, gives us hope. For the first time in, geez, I don't know how long. I've been a cop for 24 years. I don't recall ever city council members publicly declaring that we need more cops and that we should support the police. It's stunning. And the reason why I say stunning is because a history of what we've encountered in terms of being a police officer in this city is scrutiny to the degree that it's unreasonable. We are already the most accountable law enforcement agency in the United States of America. Our police accountability is led by civilians. There are three pillars to the accountability structure. That is the Office of Police Accountability led by civilians. The director is a civilian. There is the Community Police Commission led by members of the community. And then there's the Office of Inspector General led by civilians. And when you couple that with what I think is a really good blend of experienced sworn police officers doing internal investigations with civilian investigators, I think you've created uh, what is a good model, but it's to the point where now there is just so much scrutiny that uh, a lot of the people just cite how unreasonable it is. I asked Solon what he meant by an unreasonable level of scrutiny for officers in Seattle. He brought up an example stemming from a 2017 case in the Eastlake neighborhood, where two police officers fired their weapons a total of more than 30 times at a stolen car. Then police chief Carmen Best fired both officers after an internal investigation found they had violated policies around de-escalation and use of force. 
The union appealed, and last month, an outside arbiter ruled that one of the officers, Tabitha Sexton, was wrongly terminated and was owed back pay and other compensation totaling more than $600,000. Mayor Bruce Harrell immediately denounced the arbitrator's decision and called for an appeal, which the city filed this week. That doesn't sit well with Solon. The arbitrator ruled in our favor is that the city didn't follow just cause to a degree. But then immediately after, you had the executive um, publicly say that they're going to appeal the ruling. And so then you look at it in terms of an arbitrator's decision per, you know, per, per the law is final and binding. But yet you have the executive publicly say that they're going to appeal it. And so then you look at the why is that the case? The union can't appeal an arbitrator's ruling. And we followed the structure in which the disciplinary structure is laid out, agreed to by both parties. And yet when the one party, the city, doesn't like a ruling from an independent arbitrator, somebody who's unbiased, and then the city then says publicly they're going to appeal that decision, it doesn't give people much confidence that the system in place that both parties have agreed to is being adhered to by both parties. And that's a bit, it's, it's a bit disingenuous. Solon says that, by and large, he has a positive view of how Mayor Harrell has dealt with public safety and SPD during his first term. He says that contract negotiations are going well and that Spog has a sound and, quote, respectful and professional relationship with the city's negotiating team. He believes city voters have sent a clear message in November that they have not appreciated conversations about defund or other progressive goals about divesting from the police department. And Solon emphasized again how much he appreciates the new direction of Seattle's city council. We're all suffering from this public safety disaster. We simply do not have enough police officers. You have a homicide rate that has reached historic levels. You have an expired labor contract. You have people saying they're going to go to Olympia to remove our arbitration rights for police unions in the state. That is incessant and it continues. So as the union that represents the officers that are still here, we mustn't forget about the ambitions of the activist class and how they want to paint police officers in the city. And I will continue to advocate for them strongly, but balance that with what is appears to be right now a bright future with the electeds taking office at the city council. I mean, we remain extremely hopeful and optimistic that those bad vibes from before won't resurrect in this current council. That was Seattle Police Officers Guild President Mike Solon. You're listening to Soundside. I'm Libby Denkman. We're going to take some time to analyze what Solon said, and I'm joined by KUOW reporter Amy Radel, who covers law enforcement for our newsroom. Amy, what stood out to you? Well, his his hopefulness yeah. uh, amidst, you know, a lot of hard circumstances in Seattle. Um, I think our incoming political leadership has heard the concerns about a public safety crisis. Um, you know, for the public, we've also lost some institutional knowledge. You know, council members like Lisa Herbold really knew the fine print of the city ordinances and the labor contracts. Um, from Solon's perspective, he has a mayor and a council who want SPD to be successful in hiring and addressing crime. So it'll be really 
really interesting to see, you know, what they can achieve this year. Yeah. Solon is really pleased. He mentioned that Bob Kettle is the new public safety chair. He finds uh, Kettle to be somebody he can work with. Um, Solon also called SPD the most accountable law enforcement agency in the United States of America, which I found interesting. He said the Federal Monitor's report released a few weeks ago reflects that. Is that a fair statement, Amy? I mean, I think SPD has an elaborate civilian-led accountability system. It's a lot more robust than a lot of other cities. Um, And he's right that the Monitor's report last month called this system quite effective. Um, And then we have some new oversight at the state level that's really just getting off the ground. And it is going to affect officers' circumstances and lives. You know, people can seek to have officers decertified now at the state level to keep them from moving from job to job if they've, you know, been shown to commit misconduct. Um, We have a new state agency that's going to revisit some past deadly encounters between police officers and the public. So, you know, the ground is shifting. And I get that Solon is trying to advocate for his members in the midst of that. There was a piece of legislation that failed to pass in the last legislature in Olympia that would have prohibited law enforcement officers' collective bargaining agreements from including certain provisions around discipline and oversight. It would have prohibited arbitration for appeals of law enforcement discipline and other uh, um, other changes. Again, that failed. Um, Bruce Harrell, the mayor, has said that he wants to lobby for certain changes to arbitration. But we haven't seen what shape that may take in this legislative session. So we'll be watching as that plays out in Olympia, Amy. And a final note, next week will be a year since 23-year-old John V. Condula died while she was walking in South Lake Union. A Seattle police officer speeding through a crosswalk at 74 miles per hour struck and killed her. Now, there's this phone call that was caught on an officer's body cam regarding the collision that has stirred up a lot of controversy this year. Um, Guild Vice President Daniel Otterer's body cam was rolling uh, while he investigated the scene, and he can be heard joking about the situation. Mike Solon has been critical of the Office of Police Accountability's investigation into that call. He's also the other half of that phone call with Otterer, though he isn't audible. I asked Solon if he would be available for an interview to discuss this and, you know, how the case is going and the investigation. And I'm hoping that we can have him back on the show soon. We'll be back with more of our look at the Seattle Police Department and its challenges, especially around hiring after this short break on Soundside. Stay with us on KUOW. You're listening to Soundside. We're spending the day delving into challenges facing the Seattle Police Department in 2024. One of the biggest, responding to community needs while grappling with historic staffing lows. KUOW's Gustavo Segredo recently explored what residents in two Seattle neighborhoods, the Central District and Rainier Beach, say they'd like to see from their police department. All right, friends, if I'm not going up, I'm going If I'm not going left, I'm going... Apollonia Washington, or Ms. Apple, runs A for Apple Learning Center alongside her mom. It's a space meant for pre-kindergarten kids in the southern nexus of the Central District. Across the street, there's also a bus station where many kids hop on to get to school. In the parking lot behind that, a police van is parked. It's a welcome sight for her. A few months ago, a bullet intended for a man walking by the school broke their glass windows. No one was hurt. While the learning center is going on, 7 to... 5.30 p.m., Monday through Friday. I've been seeing them out there. It's a really really great feeling um, that we're finally getting them to listen to us. 
This is a change from his apple. Since the shooting, neighbors have shared the sentiment that the city and the police have largely ignored public safety in the historically black neighborhood until recently. At the same time, police run in with black Seattleites at a higher proportion than with the population. In these interactions, police are also more forceful with black Seattle than with any other community. Ms. Apple says she hasn't had negative encounters with the police and wants to see them engage with the community, but knows there's tension. A lot of people in the community, they've had trauma with dealing with police. Um, People would like to see police officers continue to show up at the various organizations and various events within the community in a positive way. Show your face, get to know the community. She has a young son who from time to time points out different officers that he's met as they're doing their errands. To her, that's a good sign. Yes, this house I grew up, so it used to be my grandma's house. A few miles south of Rainier Beach, EG Peoples runs and rents out mobile barbershops. He's been giving out fades, tapers, and etching up hairlines, starting out in his family's carport at the age of 16. He has two or three gray hairs in his beard now. Over the years, he's seen a lot of boys grow to become young men. There's photos on his social media where he's cutting kids' hair at back-to-school events, where he's sometimes running into officers. Oh, there's a lot of officers there. Um, I've, I've actually met some cool officers, man, that, you know, they actually, on their off-duty times, they're they're doing stuff in the community with the kids. You know, for me, that's a good thing. You know, I like to see people helping people, period. So, I would say it's okay. I mean, it could always be better. He's noticed how his neighborhood's changed in ways as well. Home prices going up, new neighbors. That doesn't necessarily mean everything has changed for the better. As these neighborhoods gentrify, many residents of the historically black neighborhood have been pushed out, some becoming homeless. E.G. does other things, a little mechanic work here, renting out barbershop buses there, and gospel music. He's grown up with some of the officers he sees. He talks about doing things with intention and love, something he sees lacks in the police. EG's noticed that police are stepping up their presence in other ways, but that doesn't necessarily mean a safer neighborhood. He thinks there's also a great need for police accountability. You know, I think I think we're all just frustrated. And I think we're all still trying to figure out a way to get together and, and, and make things happen. And they're just not happening as fast as we want them to. Julian Everett has found a solution for this. Everett attends and hosts a lot of events celebrating the black and brown LGBTQ plus community in Seattle which means having to think about how his community defines safety and how he can provide that for people. He will hire out private security before relying on the police. Because we know that at least they will do something. At least they will practice de-escalation. At least they would be present and be aware and they look like us. So there's a sense of understanding. He moved to the Central District from Baltimore around two years ago. He would see from afar what Black Seattle was like, the same Black Seattle that Ms. Apple and E.G. are a byproduct of and wanted to be a part of it. Now that he's here, he's seen parts of it that drew him here have faded away. Regentification is definitely pushing black and brown people out. And the cost of living within the city has definitely added to that. So in a sense, the police department may feel like I don't even have to do anything. Since 2020, he's seen how more people are learning to understand their rights during an encounter with the police for their own safety. Like others, he's critical of the police, but feels they need to get back in touch with the community they serve, learn their needs, and ultimately earn back their humanity. Everett says while that's happening, it's also important to understand resources like appropriate housing, a good-paying job, and access to mental and physical health care needs to be a part of the conversation when it comes to safer neighborhoods and their relationship with the police. Gustavo Sagredo, KUOW News. Showing up. 
getting to know the community, building trust. That's all a tall order for a Seattle Police Department that's dealing with historic staffing lows. Mayor Bruce Harrell's office said in an email that the city has accelerated the police hiring process so that it takes less time to bring on successful applicants. They've also created a workshop to make applying easier and are now offering ride-alongs and additional training opportunities for interested candidates. The mayor's office says these changes are making a difference. Still, the overall number of officers continues to decline. So why are people turning away from becoming police officers? And how is the staffing shortage affecting current officers and the community? Earlier this hour, we heard from Seattle Police Officers Guild President Mike Solon about why he thought the department was dealing with recruitment issues. And he placed a lot of blame on the current political climate in Seattle. I also spoke with SPD officer Brian Pritchard, who works with the media on behalf of the department. He told me that he believes it's often a much more personal decision. To be frank with you, I think people just aren't interested in profession right now. And I think that's possibly because they really don't understand what officers do or they've heard things about, you know, being an officer and they really don't want to kind of go for that career. I just want to take a step back and talk a little bit more about your story How did you decide to become an officer? You were an evidence technician with the Seattle Police Department before that. But why make the move to actually be a police officer? So when I I first joined the city, I already had a little inkling of that's what I wanted to do. So I decided to apply for the evidence department and I was hired. And so I kind of so I could I could kind of make my own mind up. You know, if this is what I wanted to do, I was there for 14, 15 years and I turned a little older and I figured, you know what, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to go ahead and and do it. And I decided to apply. And you were in your 40s when you applied, right? I mean, this is a little bit older than the typical recruit. I was. I was a little bit older than uh, a lot of recruits when I applied. And actually, when I went through the academy, I was uh, well, I'll just say I was well in my well into my 40s when I applied. <laughs> Did you get any uh, crap from the younger kids? <laughs> yeah, you know, it, 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 I think they called me Papa Pritchard. I, I don't know what they called me, but it was, <laughs> it was all in fun. I, it was a great experience for me to go through when I went through the academy. And I think that the decision to become an officer is a really important decision. And it's a decision that has to be talked through with your family. Of course, the last four years have been some of the most pivotal in law enforcement ever. I mean, starting in 2020, of course, the big national conversation around police use of force and accountability began because of the murder of George Floyd. What did you experience as all of this was going on. I mean, you are a black man and a police officer. I mean, personally, just how did it feel to be in the profession while all of this was going on? You know, it was it was truly tragic. And there, there were a lot of things going on, especially being a an officer of color. I think a lot of people have, I don't, I don't know if it's an expectation, but people feel you should, people kind of feel that you should feel a certain way or you should do something or this is what you should do. Like I said, for me personally, it, it was it was tragic. It was something that we, we had to go through as a department also to get better. And I think we did get better from going through this. Although, you know, as we were going through it, it was it was tough. How did it feel on a personal level to be an officer of color 
when you had protesters, politicians, parts of the media saying you are part of a system that causes harm to people of color? You know, you, you have to, as, as a officer of color, you know, you have to be true to who you are and know who you are. You know that you have a job to do as an officer and you are held to a certain expectation and you follow that. And you really have to realize, for me anyway, I realized people, majority of the time, it was all about the uniform. They react to the uniform, not to who you are. For me, thinking of it as they're not talking to me personally, I don't take it personal because it's not me who they're talking about or talking to. It's the uniform. They may have experienced something in their past where they feel a certain way about an officer. You know, it's, it's up to me to try to change that, that, that way they think, the, you know, that expectation, the way they think of an officer, that preconceived notion of what an officer should be. Mm. I was struck by something that Apollonia Washington told my colleague, Gustavo Segrero. Um, mm-hmm. She's the owner of A for Apple, uh, the daycare that had the bullet fly through its window in the Central District yeah. last year. And yeah, I'm sure you're familiar. Apollonia said she was happy to see stepped up police presence in her neighborhood since then. But she did emphasize that the quality of interactions and the relationships in the community really matter. I'm just going to read a quote here. A lot of people in the community, they've had trauma dealing with police. People would like to see police officers continue to show up at the various organizations and various events within the community in a positive way. Show your face. Get to know the community that's from the central to the south in Seattle. Everyone should know everyone, you know, and that's how we continue to build community. And I was struck by that officer because with resources stretched thin, is that kind of community building possible right now with SPD? You know, we have to, even with our staffing, something like this, we have to make possible. I patrolled downtown Seattle, um, Queen Sector, Lower Queen Anne, and there were more officers at that time. I would go to talk to the store owners. I would, I would be an officer presence at some of these stores or some of these markets and really gained a relationship with some of these owners or these the the staff. And I think that's important. At that time, there were more officers. And I think that more officers are definitely going to make it easier to get out and do these things. But like I said, we need to, even with the staffing we have now, we need to get out there and try try to do this and galvanize that relationship between community members. Brian Pritchard is an officer with the Seattle Police Department. Officer Pritchard, thanks very much for the conversation. All right. Thank you so much, Woody. So Officer Pritchard said his goal is to improve on people's preconceived notions or lived experiences of police. But he admits that low staffing at SPD presents a challenge to the type of relationship building that can achieve that. We're going to talk more about these challenges with former King County Sheriff Sue Rar after the break. Stay with us on KUOW. Back with more SoundSide on KUOW, I'm Libby Dankman, and we've been spending the hour exploring why Seattle's police department is struggling to hire and retain officers. 
So far, we've heard from a representative of Seattle's police department, a police union leader, as well as community members in South Seattle with public safety concerns. Sue Rahr is a former King County sheriff and former executive director of the Washington State Criminal Justice Training Commission. Now she serves on the board of directors for the National Policing Institute, which is dedicated to advancing policing through innovation and independent scientific research. She told me that when it comes to hiring and retention, you have to consider how society's expectations of policing and police culture have changed. Well, I think I think you have to look at it on a couple of different levels. If you look, you know, nationally, the numbers are down. And, and this didn't just start in 2020 after the murder of George Floyd. This trend started a decade ago. And so we, we have to remember that because People, people tend to ascribe a cause to an event, and they may not be as connected as you would think. So, so I think fewer people have been seeking to be police officers for a very long time. It used to be, you know, the cool profession to go into the 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, all these cop shows came up and police were portrayed as heroes. And it was the sort of thing, you know, I want to do this when I grow up. Our culture has changed since then. So, so that, that's one contributing factor, just the over, overall societal view of policing is different now. I think the, the people that we want to get into law enforcement in 2024, we're, we're, we're targeting a different demographic. I want to talk more about the cultural shift because that's something that you are have been very big on for years and you've been part of that shift at the academy and as sheriff. Um, you know, before we move on to that cultural uh, aspect of it, though, just the reality that, yes, there was a drop in hiring before 2020, but there's no doubt that it accelerated in 2020 and afterwards. And there are these two big milestones, of course, COVID and the George Floyd murder and protests um, that that we look to. And but you let will me, hear voices. Yeah. Let me interrupt you. There's another factor that people forget about, too. There was a massive hiring push. Remember when Bill Clinton was in office and we put 100,000 cops in the street? We are also dealing with the bow wave of that generation of police officers are all retiring. And so, again, I think we have to be super careful that we don't ascribe cause to the wrong factors. There are a ton of people, and I know in King County Sheriff's Office in particular, we were looking at the numbers going, oh, baby, we better get ready here because we could see the number of officers or deputies that were that were eligible to retire. Now, because the recession hit, <laughs> A lot of them waited to retire because they couldn't afford to retire when they were upside down in their mortgages. So there was a little bit of a delay in the bow wave of retirement. So that's an important factor that we can't lose sight of. Absolutely, when um, Ferguson happened, when George Floyd, when all of those things happened and police were being portrayed in social media, across all kinds of media, you know, as the bad guys. I think there are a number of people who change their mind, but I believe, and this is my personal experience, that that is probably the smallest factor. Even though I think if you ask most cops, I think they believe that it's the bad public sentiment that is causing this problem because that's what it feels like. But when you dig down and look at the, the, all of the, 
the, the, the factors that contribute to this, that's one of, you know, three or four major factors. So we, we just have to be really careful about that. On the positive side of, of the, um, the public perception, the negative perception that some members of the public have, I think that definitely discourages the people coming into policing that do it because they want to be the hero and they want people to admire them. I think we are reaching more recruits that want to come into this to do something good. They're not looking for the adventure and the hero status. They're looking at their community and saying, I want to make this better. We are at the front of a new era of policing. We are looking at the profession of policing in a different way. And, and one of the things that I feel so strongly about, and I've been doing a lot of, working on a lot of national reform projects around the country over the last five or six years. And, and that is, we have to stop using the police as a substitute for properly funding social services, mental health, uh, substance abuse, housing, employment, all of those things are the, the strongest factors in driving crime and disorder. And yet we expect the cops to go in and clean up the mess of a society that won't, won't pay for what is needed to keep our communities safe. Um, we, there, there's a term, uh, from a good friend of mine. She says, we create criminogenic conditions in the community. And then we expect the cops to come in and cure it. And, and, and I think that's the conversation we need to have now. I, yes, there are bad apples in policing. Yes, we need to have accountability. But to a large degree, a lot of that behavior is a symptom of the frustration of officers being put in a position where they can't succeed. We, we, we send them into these criminogenic conditions where people don't have a place to live. They are addicted for many complicated reasons. They can't afford housing. And we expect the cops to fix it. Um, as a society, it's very convenient to ascribe crime and disorder to mor the moral failing of individuals. And that may be a factor in many cases. But at the end of the day, as a society, we have not properly funded just a, a, a basic social service net. And things are falling apart. And, and we're using the cops as you know to clean up the mess and it's not fair to the cops it's not fair to the community have you seen a major change with the upheaval of the george floyd protests with the political conversations around defund have you seen a major change to the funding and the political will towards alternatives like you know funding social services that are um, feeding into that long-term public safety or has the George Floyd moment in many parts of the country subsided and people have sort of uh, gone to their corners politically and, and seen alternatives to policing as being from one side of the political spectrum and we are, you know, quote unquote, pro-police on the right side of the political spectrum and therefore, you know, neither the twain shall meet. Like, we're not going to look at that. Absolutely. I mean, you, you, you're hitting on a really important point. We are at a, we are at a place in... in society where we want to make everything a binary choice. Either you're pro-police or you're against the police, which is BS. <laughs> there, there, I, I have worked with a number of community leaders from communities of color around the country that have high crime in their neighborhoods. And, and consistently, the actual leaders, not 
some person yakking in front of a camera, but the actual community leaders say, we don't want de-policing. We want good policing. And we want, we need police in our neighborhoods because they're, they're dangerous, but we want the police to be fair and treat us fairly. And you had mentioned, you know, after, after the George Floyd case, there was, it changed the conversation about policing and should police be the ones to go to every call? Should we use alternative call handling? The rhetoric of, of alternative call handling is way up. The problem is we, it, we've never gotten past the rhetoric as a country. We're talking about what we need to do, but very, very few places are funding it. So we talk about, you know, we should be sending social workers to these type of calls. Absolutely, we should. And where are we going to get all those social workers? Social workers get paid less than cops. But at the end of the day, if you have enough social workers to become case managers and to meaningfully, in a meaningful way, intervene in people's lives, it's very expensive. You, you can't call for alternative call handling and not properly fund the alternative. We have to have a fundamental shift at the local, state, and national level about how we fund community safety. Police are just one piece of that community safety picture. And, and even though, again, police, police salaries are higher than social worker salaries and things like that, the infrastructure and the follow through for what social workers are going to identify as needs, those things are very expensive. They're more expensive than police. They're more expensive than jails. But in the long term, they work and they actually will reduce recidivism, but, it, but it's the long game. We use the police to come in and clean up the mess that's created by not properly funding necessary community services. And so the, the, the police officers get frustrated. Uh, on the other hand, if we don't encourage cops to let go of how many arrests did you make, how many, you know, we've got to give them a different measure of if an, if an officer can resolve a situation peacefully, that, that should be huge kudos, as opposed to, did you book the guy in jail? Um, if you can resolve a situation without force, without arrest, that should be a measure of success. And is there currently a mechanism to do that, to track that and to reward officers who do resolve things without having to book somebody or you know potentially resort to force? Well, I think there is, and that comes into that comes down to the internal culture of the police department. And here is the rub. I think there are many police leaders, there are many police officers who would prefer to do policing that way. But when you have, and I'm not talking about our mayor or our city council, but, but writ large, typically mayors and city councils want to see numbers and they want to see metrics that show uh, work product. And it's much easier to count arrests and bookings and convictions than it is to measure something that didn't happen because you avoided it. And so what that requires is a high level of trust between the city council, the mayor, the police chief, the community leaders. They need to trust each other to say, okay, the police are going to come in and try to resolve this situation. I'm, I, I'm oversimplifying that, but... But one of the big drivers of like specialized units, uh, the Tyree Nichols case is one that is so instructive of this dynamic. 
you have you have a violent crime surge in a community. You have pressure on local elected leaders to do something. Those leaders put pressure on the chief to do something. And the, the quickest go-to, the quickest thing to show measurable results is to throw together a specialized unit and stop everybody, make lots of arrests. That is probably one of the more damaging ways to try and solve the problem. And then when it all goes terribly wrong, you know, we barbecue the police, but nobody's talking about the fact that the chief and the mayor and everybody else, the police were working at their direction. And so we, we have to, to recognize police are not some unit or entity separate from the community. They work for the city council, the mayor, the, the elected officials. And those people have the power to tell the police, do this job differently. But they don't do that because if they did, they wouldn't get reelected because nothing sells a political campaign like tough on crime. I want to bring this back to recruiting and retention before we go. I, all of this, obviously, you've worked in this area for so many years. There's few people with as much experience as you have um, with different departments, with different um, aspects of policing from training to leading an entire department. Um, you made the point before we got on here that not every department in the country is having recruiting issues. Nationwide, hiring retention is hurting. But when we drill down on individual departments, some are seeing success. What is the What are the kinds of policies that are leading to success in retaining and recruiting? And where do you see departments falling short? So what, what I see, and I have, to, I have to caveat this with this is anecdotal based on my own experience, but what I see when you have an inspirational police leader who's out in the community, who has a very healthy culture inside of their police department, most recruiting does not happen at recruiting fairs or through an advertisement in the newspaper. It's word of mouth. And it's people in that particular police department telling their friends and neighbors, this is a great place to work. I want, and so, so rec for recruiting, the word of mouth is extremely powerful. The other challenge is retention. How do you keep people? And we certainly are, are dealing with a different generational perspective. It used to be people coming into policing stayed for an entire career, you know, and, and that's every career, not just police departments. People move around from, from one uh, employer to another. In policing, the real magic is in retention. In my opinion, we, there's always going to be young people coming in the door, but you also have to retain the good people because it is it's very expensive and takes a very long time to, to recruit, hire, train, and implement a new police officer. It's probably $150,000 in a year and a half of training every time you replace a police officer. So for, for agencies that have a strong, healthy culture, where the officers and, and the, the professional staff feel appreciated, you're, you're going to reduce your retention problem just by creating a positive culture. There are some police departments that pay really well, and, and they're going to attract people initially. And, you know, some people can be, can be uh, attracted by money. But at the end of the day, in my experience, money isn't the biggest question 
for, for most people. Um, I remember 20 years ago, State Patrol, you know, they had such a great reputation. Their pay wasn't that great, but people were so loyal to the patrol because of the culture. And, and so, you know, over time, those dynamics have changed. But um, I, I believe with all of my heart that strong leadership and positive culture is hands down the most important factor in retaining officers. And when you retain good people, the word gets out, this is a good place to work. That was Sue Rahr, former King County Sheriff and former executive director of the Washington State Criminal Justice Training Commission. Now she serves on the board of directors for the National Policing Institute. I'm Libby Dankman, and I'm joined once again by KUOW reporter Amy Radel as we come to the end of the hour. Any more big picture takeaways, Amy? Um, Well, I thought it was interesting. We heard Officer Pritchard and Sue Rahr both say we can't let this short staffing prevent relationships between police officers and their community. Um, So I think, you know, hearing both of them talk about that, I think it's important for us to ask SPD, what's the plan to facilitate that? Um, And we need to keep asking community members like Apollonia Washington, uh, you know, the the child care center owner, what they need, because I would imagine that it's pretty easy to sacrifice uh, uh, that community interaction as officers are, you know, racing between calls. And another trade-off of having these new crisis responders is that police officers, you know, might get sent to move along even faster and have even fewer interactions with community members. Yeah. Okay, so we've talked about a lot today, the hiring crisis, contract negotiations, some of the um, scandals that are plaguing the department and questions around culture and, and workplace um, environment. What other issues are you going to be following closely as 2024 unfolds, Amy? Um, Well, I'll throw out one more idea, which is a solution that I keep hearing about and that we need to talk about more is increased civilianization within SPD as a possible solution to this really acute moment. Um, Hmm. I've heard suggestions like bring back retired detectives as civilians to do investigations. I've heard people within law enforcement say we could even go beyond that. We don't need sworn staff in some of these positions that would free up people to be out, you know, addressing calls. So I don't know if that's part of the current labor negotiations, but it's something that I'm hoping to try to watch. KUOW reporter Amy Radel, thank you very much for joining me today. Yeah, you're welcome. And this show was just one part of a larger series by KUOW on Seattle's police department. You can find more of our series at KUOW.org slash Seattle Police. Thanks for listening to Soundside. This show is only possible because listeners support us. If you're able to give right now, please check out the show notes for a link to donate. And don't forget, you can listen live on KUOW 94.9 FM Seattle at noon and 8 p.m. Monday through Thursday or anytime online at KUOW.org. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network.